we talk about how it's easy to perceive refugees and even the immigrant community as a terrorist threat or some sort of, of safety threat. And if we put them in that box only, then what will end up happening is we want to keep close tabs on them. We want to keep them at arm's length and watch them very closely. And if we're not careful, that just turns into some sort of, you know, kind of communist uh, sort of puppetry that no one really wants, right? I mean, that's going to cost more. It's going to cause more challenges and problems. And what we see is if we treat people like that, they potentially could end up engaging in that type of activity, right? So if we have individuals who are resettling in the U.S. legally, but they get here and they face a lot of tension and a lot of suspicion about who they are and the clothes they wear and how they speak, we're then kind of shunning them in a way in which they're going to now be open to, you know, why am I here? Diversity of ideas is harder than it looks. Welcome to Innovation for All, conversations on the social impact of innovation with your host, Shana Alkvist. Welcome to the Innovation for All podcast, where it's my job to speak with innovators and technologists on issues of culture, social systems, and diversity. I'm your host, Shana Alkvist. In this episode, I spoke with Chris Chancey, founder of Amplio Recruiting. Amplio Recruiting is an agency that helps great companies hire dependable employees from the refugee workforce. They've generated over $7 million in revenue and placed over 4,000 refugees living in the U.S. into full-time employment over the last four years. I found Chris to be a really smart and thoughtful guy. I mean, he'll tell you the backstory in the episode about how he came across this problem and ended up developing this solution. But he saw a problem with refugees not being able to get hired in the United States, while at the same time he saw lots of companies trying to hire great employees and feeling like they weren't really available. In creating Amplio Recruiting, he solved both of those problems. But a lot of what I enjoy about our conversation is in the how. How do you allay employers' fears about hiring refugees? What are sort of their main concerns and how do you get around those? On the other hand, you can imagine that a refugee population might be especially vulnerable to abuse. How does Chris ensure that they have a good process at the company to make sure that companies aren't going to abuse their workers or sort of take advantage of them? How do they make sure that the refugees who are working in these companies are being protected? We talk about basic challenges when you're working with cross-cultural populations. We also talk about what it even means to be a refugee has really become something people are familiar with in the last few years. You know, when he started out, people didn't know what refugees were, and now it's sort of the opposite problem. People are, are walking in with strong opinions, either for or against refugees, and how that's really changed the way he approaches new business. And lastly, I was excited to talk to Chris because when it comes to thinking about how America deals with refugees, in many ways, we think about outsourcing that problem solving to the government. But what I thought was awesome about Chris was he instead took a free market approach. What are some things that he could do, not literally tomorrow, but what what is an action that he could take to help this community that maybe doesn't directly involve the government instead? Chris lives and works in Georgia, so I also thought the context in which he created this business was especially interesting. And before we get to today's episode, a quick request. 
Hopefully you're enjoying Innovation for All. And if that's the case, you recommending the show to a friend is the only way we can grow. So assuming it's safe to do so, I'd invite you to pause this episode right now and text a link to the show to someone you know who's interested in how refugees are thriving in America today. And with that, please enjoy my conversation with Chris Chancy, founder of Amplio Recruiting. Chris Chancy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I am uh, honored to be a part of the conversation. So the work you do now, sort of in a roundabout way, began when you you bought a home and sort of didn't do your due diligence about the area you were going to be living in. Can you tell me about that story? Yeah, my wife and I were looking for you know property that we could afford. And so we, we kind of found this little community that seemed to have property at a price point that we were excited about. And and um, we knew like just by driving through the community that it looked like a pretty diverse area. And so my only positive spin on it was, hey, there's probably some great ethnic food in this, uh, this part of town. And little did we know at the time, just um, the whole like, history of the community that's called Clarkston, Georgia, right outside of Atlanta. And for those of us who aren't familiar with Clarkston, can you share what that is? Yeah, sure. So it's, uh, Clarkston is called the most diverse square mile in the country in the U.S., and mainly because it's been an area for refugee resettlement for essentially the past 40 years now. So really late 70s, early 80s, the process began to resettle individuals from all over the world, and mainly because it had public transportation into Atlanta, a lot of jobs in the area at the time that were available, and lots of land that could be used for developing multi-use apartment complexes, multifamily units. So it became a hotbed and, and uh, continues to be that today. Lots of, you know, well over 100 different nations represented. And it's just a beautiful melting pot of culture and community. And so we landed right in the thick of it. And, uh, and as we got to know our neighbors and learned to eat the foods that they would you know, cook and enjoy, we were you know, eating dinners in their home or inviting them over to our home for you know, banana pudding and fried chicken and we learned a lot about the community and most prominently that right at 50% of the community was either unemployed or underemployed. And so that's kind of what led us to begin thinking about what kind of business we might be able to start to employ individuals from the community. Yeah. And and how did that reveal itself when you were having these interactions? Are people just coming right out and saying like, Hey, unemployment's really a problem here. No, I mean, usually it was, it was by really peeling back the layers of the onion and really trying to determine for specific individuals, one of the first individuals we met and got to eat in his home was a gentleman named Basombo. And uh, I mean, just really charismatic, huge smile. Um, he was from the Democratic Republic of Congo, which is, which is the number one uh, country that has resettled refugees in the U.S. And so, I mean, he just had this, this uh, beautiful family, uh, three kids, and just was so excited to share his story, but it was easy for him to leave out the hard parts and the parts that are full of pain and you know parts that you'd rather just forget. And so as we started to kind of peel back the layers of the onion and just got to know him better as a neighbor and as a friend, it would start to reveal itself that there's this lack of dignity by not having a job or not having a job that was empowering and something that he was proud of. And it really just repeated itself. I mean, anybody we met in the community, every conversation would end with someone saying, can you help me find a job? 
and I guess just as a white guy, that was just the assumption is that I've, that I've got all the connections, you know? So, but I, I mean, I think we did have enough of, of kind of social capital, you know, in the Atlanta kind of metro area that we did know, man, there's a lot of companies that would love to hire these individuals. So I think a lot of it for those who've resettled in the U S is just a lack of social capital to know where to go and who to connect with that can really get them to a place where they, you know, they can find gainful employment. So while all this is happening, what is your perspective from sort of your, your traditional colleagues on employment? I mean, do they feel like, oh, it's hard to find a job or did they feel like it was hard to find employees? Yeah, the business community in Atlanta, individuals would say, uh, we can't find good people. In fact, they would say things like, we feel handcuffed. Uh, I remember the, the language specifically being used by a construction company. Um, we've got tons of opportunity, but we feel handcuffed to really be able to take advantage of it because we can't find dependable employees that will show up and, and do the work. And of course, there's situations that where it may just be a you know low pay or just a poor working environment that leads to companies not being able to find good employees. Uh, but in the labor market that that we're in, it's hard to find individuals who are going to be dependable and not have uh, substance abuse you know, issues or other kind of uh, barriers to employment. And then we look at this refugee community that's legal to work, has very little hurdles that are really keeping them from being able to be engaged. So the idea of it seems pretty easy to accept for you know, business owners, um, but it was, there was always suspicion and, and kind of cynicism of this, can this actually work? Can they overcome some of those hurdles, transportation, language, you know, to really be able to contribute and add value to a local company. Yeah. And I just guess, so we're just really explicit about it. Can you talk about Amplia Recruiting and what you currently do? Sure. Yeah. So in that process of, of figuring out, okay, jobs is going to be the thing that can have the most impact in this community. We thought through several different businesses that we could start. You know, at the time, my wife and I had started 10 different companies at that point and failed in a lot of cases, but really we're learning from that process of really where we felt like we could um, have the most impact. And so we thought through several different ideas of companies that we could launch, but all of those really in the, in our kind of best prediction of kind of how things could turn out, we're, we're thinking maybe 20 or 30 employees, but literally there were thousands of people that um, had the ability to contribute and wanted to be in the workforce. And so we landed on this idea of a staffing company and we had no background in staffing. Um, but we thought, how hard can it be, right? It's just connecting these individuals over here who are looking for work and connecting with companies that, that are trying to hire. And the concept is pretty simple, but of course, you know, in, in any case where you, you utter the, that phrase, how hard can this be? Let's do it. Uh, you find <laughs> out that, you know, there's a lot hidden behind the door, but we launched a staffing company in 2014. So, little over five years now of placing you know refugees into employment so we struggled a lot early on to really get the right business model and kind of get things into place but you know at this point placed over 5,000 people into full-time employment uh, both in Atlanta as well as in Raleigh and Dallas and Houston and a few other markets around the US as we grow and we've seen over 9 million in revenue at this point and so it's uh it's an exciting adventure every day to navigate the world that we're in, but we get to see companies move forward. Communities, you know, begin to uh, take more stable position in their local economy. And, you know, best of all these individuals and their families being in a better position to add value to, to their local communities. 
I'm curious, along that journey, what was the hardest problem you had to overcome in sort of the early days? You know, was it having a large enough pool of refugee workers to pull from? Or was it getting initial intros to businesses? Or was it just figuring out sort of um, regulatory logistics? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, on the business side, it was just understanding the rhythms of staffing and just how it works. And so just something as simple as, you know, net 30-day payment terms and, you know, just having the, the financial support to kind of make that whole process much less of a headache. And so thankfully, we, we bumped into some really good partners along the way and were able to kind of stabilize that aspect of what we're doing. You know, as far as like the recruiting part, it was really challenging early on to convince the community and, and nonprofit players in the community and then specifically individuals that... So is this the business community or the refugee community? The the refugee community. Yeah, the refugee community that the jobs that we had were legitimate, permanent opportunities. There was not a kind of bait and switch going on here that we truly had their best interest in mind because I think that they are on high alert for the potential being taken advantage of. I mean, it just, they're in a position where they've had to learn uh, through a lot of heartache you know, and in their situation that truly could be taken advantage of. And so, you know, so early on, we kind of had to build this, this rapport and uh, this reputation that we really were trying to serve the community and at the same time provide great opportunities for the business uh, community around Atlanta as well. So that was a really big, bigger challenge than we expected. And now we're at a place where every day we have more individuals looking for work than we have open positions in, you know, the first half of this year right around a thousand individuals have walked into one of our offices applying for a job for the first time. And right around 75% of those individuals have been placed into a full-time job, but that still leaves, you know, 200, 300 people that could be working that currently aren't in a position. So uh, we talk about being one of the only staffing companies in the country right now that says we have more people than we have uh, jobs to place them in. Well, it's always been so frustrating to me to watch the sort of the hiring recruiting process that there are people out there who can do good work and there are companies out there who are desperate for talent and that that just like finding each other is so hard. Yeah, it's finding each other. And then it's that additional component of overcoming any miscommunications or misunderstandings and keeping uh, individuals, especially those first few weeks, you know, in the job and engaged and figuring out how you can best serve them from the business side. It's a dance for sure. And it's something we're continuing to learn more and more about how do we equip both sides of the equation to make sure it's a win-win for everyone. Well, and you mentioned that early on the refugee population was a little bit um, skeptical of, of your work. What about the business community? Were they like, refugees, sign me up? Or were they skeptical as well? Yeah. So early on in 2014, we really still were in a place where if we went to a company and, and you know, knocked on a door, cold call, and, and we're explaining what we're doing and why we feel like we can, we can provide employees or maybe other staffing companies or their, even their internal HR team hasn't been successful, we would have to answer the questions such as, what is a refugee? Or try to go ahead and maybe dismantle some misconceptions of someone kind of under, think, thinking they understood what a refugee was. So, so that was like 2014. By the time 2016 hits, and there's been all this media attention and political rhetoric around refugees, now we're not answering that question as much. There's been some education provided, and it became more of, okay, what countries are they coming from? 
How do we know that they truly are legal to work? How have they been vetted? What's that vetting process like? And you could really hear the, the question behind the question being like, is this safe? You know, am I going to open myself or my company up to some sort of terrorist activity? So there were still misconceptions, but there was overall kind of better education around what refugees were. And, uh, and so from the business community, there was really two responses. It was either companies learning about what a refugee was and saying, oh, cheap labor, warm bodies, we need that. It's right here in our backyard and it's legal, you know, send them over. And then there would be other individuals and businesses that would say, hey, we just want to help. We, we could provide good jobs and, and we just want to be a part of the solution for these individuals who are trying to rebuild their lives. And so on that spectrum, it was our role then to try to figure out what are the best places for our employees to, to work and, you know, how can we best set them up for long-term careers as well as, you know, serve these businesses and our local economy by filling the positions that are open. So at that point, we developed a 30-point scale that we put every company through to really determine that the business is a good place for, for the refugee community to work and a good place, you know, that, that we really feel like there's going to be a win-win here and it's going to be, you know, a good fit for everyone involved. I'm so glad you brought that up because on the one hand, I could understand how a business might say like, oh, I'm reluctant. How do we know if, if they're going to show up or if they're skilled? But at the same time, as you've identified, this is a really vulnerable population. And I think what you alluded to in the beginning of describing the sort of business response is like, we just want more bodies. There's also a risk that you know business is going to take advantage of this group. So you mentioned you had this 30-point scale. Can you talk about how you sort of what that looks like and how you came to evaluated on those criteria? Like, how do you judge a company to know if they're going to be good for this community or if they're going to maybe put them at further risk? Yeah, I mean, it's something that we developed over time. And for us, it's just more of like, you know, how do we make sure that the refugee employees are going to be dignified and happy in these roles of this company? How can we make sure that there's retention there? And uh, we see retention rates double, I mean, through the roof, you know, in our industry, 40% is the retention rate. So, you know, four out of 10 people that are hired are still in the job after three months. You know, we see eight out of 10, I mean, it consistently. And so we want to make sure that continues to be the case. And so some of the factors on that 30 point scale are very um, just logical. And it's probably something every staffing company does. And just in terms of, you know, something as simple as making sure that the location is close enough that, you know, individuals can get to work easily through public transportation or, or whatever means necessary. And that's going to be something that can, can happen, you know, day in and day out. So we try to make sure jobs are within 30 miles of where our offices are around the country, you know, but of course pay rates play into it. And so for us, um, for Atlanta, for example, we won't place any employees at a company that's going to pay less than $10 an hour. And so that is above, you know, well above minimum wage, uh, in our community, that's a living wage. And so um, that's going to be different in whatever community you might be in a, across the country. But there's been some cases where some companies, we've, we've had to you know, walk out of the discussion because it's just, they're not willing to do that. Um, and there's also been some companies that have said, hey, you know, we traditionally pay $9 an hour for this position, but we're willing to go to 10, partly because we're that desperate and partly because we do want to impact this community. And so so we see you know, a range of response as we kind of share the things that are most important. But then some of the factors that are a little bit more relevant to the refugee community, for them, the biggest concern and, and really the highest value is around stability. So 
typically a company is going to be asked about their benefits. And that response would be in terms of, hey, here's our 401k or you know, here's the, you know, our, our time off policy. But for our community, benefits and, and really is really tied to stability. So something as simple as a name tag or a business card equates, I mean, it's obviously very low cost to the company, but it equates a huge amount of stability because there's this commitment and this sign of pride. And, uh, you know, it goes the same for any kind of uniform or lab coat or uh, protective equipment. When those things are involved as, in some cases, as just as normal as that is in the process, those are items that denote a lot of pride and respect and dignity in the role. So we try to gauge you know, what does that look like? What are those, those truly like beneficial stability defining aspects about the job? Certainly we look into the culture and the environment of the workplace, not just at the top level of the individuals, like a CEO who might be really excited about employing refugees, but also at the, at the level of a line leader or a shift supervisor, who's the one who's going to be most engaging with and and kind of have the most impact on our employees. So it's looking at things from all angles and trying to make the best decision for everyone involved. Mm, that's an interesting example, though, this idea that, you know, the CEO might be really on board, but maybe the, the line manager is not. How are you able to vet that? I mean, is it like you're showing up unannounced or, you know, just are people willing to just tell you straight up like, oh, I don't know about these refugees? Yeah, it's certainly in conversation. You can find a lot about someone. I mean, I think we've all seen on a political spectrum, you know, what it looks like to just jump to conclusions about individuals or, or someone's, you know, beliefs or policy. So it's got to happen in conversation, but you can certainly learn a lot just by being observant and taking time to engage with people. And you can, you know, really what we look for most often is there a sense of gratitude. And so we see a pretty quick turnaround, you know, in many cases, a company will say, let's try it out. You know, let's send us over, you know, two people, four people, whatever. Let's, let's see how this is going to work. And pretty quickly after that, Sometimes, you know, the same day, there's a phone call that says, hey, can you send us 10 more people just like this? And so you get a sense pretty quickly of gratitude and where there seems to be a lack of that and just um, a lack of respect in the relationship Mm -hmm. we have with them, then we probably can assume that that same case is happening, you know, on the job. And so we try to be really aware in conversation, but we've done, you know, we've done things such as I would say is, is pretty extreme. We've had in situations where, one of our team members has worked a full shift alongside our employees just to get a, a good sense of what's actually happening on the ground, you know, on the warehouse floor, what really is going on and what are the, the tensions that might exist there. And that just gives us more insight to be able to know, again, what's best for the entire community. I mean, we want to see companies that are going to invest in these individuals as the company benefits and they see uh, greater profit and they see a, a greater productivity and they see greater retention rates, then, you know, how are they then investing back in that community? Are they, can they upskill them? Can they train them on other you know, aspects of the work? And, you know, it could be ESL or it could be helping provide transportation. So, you know, what are that, what are those things? You know, when we see that gratitude at play and it starts to reinvest in the employees that they're, they've got on their uh, payroll, you know, that's a good sense. This is a good relationship and we'll be able to continue to build off that. I'd love to unpack some of the assumptions people have about the refugee population and whether or not those are sort of accurate. So you mentioned earlier, refugees are legal to work. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. They get vetted by Homeland Security. And uh, essentially, the day they arrive in the U.S., 
uh, they'll receive some paperwork and they'll be legal to work. Wow. And then I'm wondering, um, when employers are hesitant, what are some of the assumptions they're making? So I, I have a couple questions. Basically, there's perceived challenges of working with this population. Maybe there's concerns about their speaking English or their, um, that they might move or that they're not going to be here for a long time. But those may or may not be right, right? So I'm curious, what are the things people think will be a problem and whether or not those are? And then what are the actual challenges that people may or not think of? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. And yeah, I mean, those are, those are essentially the, the conversations we find ourselves having on a daily basis. Yeah, let's, let's take the first one. What are the, what are the concerns you hear a lot um, that maybe you, you tend to find to be unfounded that the people assume when they walk into the conversation? Yeah, so everybody kind of starts at a place that is that, you know, talking about language and talking about transportation. So, you know, we refer to these things not as barriers to employment, because that would then communicate that it's really difficult or you're maybe even unable to access employment versus a hurdle, right? It's something to overcome. And so we navigate around that and we talk about it. So take um, language, for example. Uh, many refugees are like they learn English at a primary school level. And so they come to the U.S. speaking fluent English. And so that's not a factor for them at all. And then many refugees will, will learn English when they're here. But often what we do is we'll, we'll place any individual that comes in our office on a scale of one to five. So one being they have no English ability at all and five being they're completely fluent. And often what we see from a company is they'll say, we need five, send us your fives. We want, you know, people who are fluent. And many times- They got to close the deal. <laughs> right. And a lot of times it's related to safety. You know, of course, that's a, that is the primary concern at many companies. So we understand that. But often, you know, what we'll communicate is, sure, you know, we're, we're happy to send you some of our most fluent individuals to start off with. But very quickly, those individuals can be bridge builders for others who may not be as fluent to step into the role. And so, you know, if you can, you know, be willing for us to send you some threes as we kind of get into the process, those individuals will have, you know, something pretty profound happens when you have a job and you're in an environment where you're forced to speak English, you're going to learn English. I mean, it, it has such a tremendous impact. You can go to all the ESL classes you want, but if, you, if you're able to layer in some ESL classes, some, some you know, English classes with being on, uh, you know, on a factory floor or being in a job environment, a corporate environment, you're going to drastically improve your ability to learn English, especially in a, in a short period of time. So, so we love kind of communicating, hey, you can have value to these individuals just by hiring some that are in the process of learning English. You're going to speed up that, that process for them. So we, we talk through some of that and uh, you know, hopefully help the companies identify. There's some things you can do just by demonstrating. You know, it, it's easy for someone to think that if you can't speak English, it's equated to your intelligence level. And it's just not true. But for whatever reason, we're all kind of wired to feel that way. And so as soon as someone, you, you show a demonstration to someone, and then you kind of, uh, you know, allow them to put their hands on it and, and begin to do it themselves and maybe provide some correction. And really, there's some good onboarding and training involved. The need for English is much lower than you would anticipate. And so most often, in the environments we're in, manufacturing and warehousing, hospitality, you know, individuals that are, are shown what to do, they'll pick it up pretty quickly and immediately they'll start improving upon the process and think of things that you've never thought about doing before to make it more efficient. We see that across the board. So 
that's the probably the biggest thing that are it's somewhat true and that language needs to be addressed, but it's nowhere near the challenge that uh, most companies would anticipate it to be. Mm, they don't all need to be fives. <laughs> right. Well, and you'd also mentioned that transportation was an assumption. Are, are people assuming that they need to maybe have their own car? Or what does that look like? Yeah, that's, that's another discussion we have most often. One of the first questions we're asked. And so, of course, as people resettle here, they don't have a car um, or they don't have their own you know, mode of transportation. But you know, when there's a job on the line for someone who is, is very eager to get back into the workforce and very motivated to provide for their family, they're going to figure out how to get there. And so we help a lot with that. But for the most part, when there's a good job on the line, if it's a bus, if it's walking, we had an individual just last week who uh, the company had said, hey, he, they said, hey, you can take tomorrow off. We're not scheduled to have another shipment in until Monday. Um, and so this was on a Friday morning that the shipment did arrive. And we just called and said, uh, his name is Dean. He's from Afghanistan. We said, Dean, the company just called and said, if you'd like to work today, you can come in because the shipment did arrive. And literally, you can hear him on the phone running. And we're like, he's like, <laughs> short of breath. And we're like, Dean, what's going on? He's like, I'm on the way. I'm almost there. And so, of course, that's not across the board. But there's a high motivation to show up when you're given an opportunity to, to work and be a part of something that's much bigger than yourself. So they put a high... Um, you know, high engagement on that. So if it's a bus, if it's, you know, a, a train, whatever it might be, a lot of carpooling happens. But what we've seen is, is something pretty unique. So if, if someone is being employed right around the three-month mark, we see about 40% of our employees getting a car. I mean, for, for companies out there to think, hey, you know, we've got a job opening, you know, we can pay this amount. And, and you think you're going to receive all the benefit there. But just by employing someone who's in this position, they're going to improve their English. And most likely, they're going to buy their own mode of transportation after three months of being employed. I mean, that's, that's pretty profound impact after just three months of, of having a job. So we love sharing that. We have one company that's a global, um, that, like a freezer company. So they basically, they hold products that need to be uh, mostly food products that are distributed out through grocery stores around the world. And so they said, hey, we want to we want to employ refugees. We want to be a part of helping them move forward in their life. We've got jobs that we can pay well for, and we haven't been able to fill them. And they were so committed to the process. They said, we'll pay for their transportation for the first three months if they're committed to having a car by the time the three months is over. And that's exactly what they did. So for three months, they're providing transportation on their own. And then it's this great kind of uh, accountability that say, you know, three months is coming. If you don't have a vehicle, we're no longer going to pay for transportation. And uh, so you see individuals taking their driving test, you know, one, two, in some cases, you know, four or five times to make sure that they, they pass it and get their driver's license and get a vehicle. Uh, so we love being a part of, of some of those stories and seeing business, you know, being leveraged for impact like that. No, and it's great to hear. It sort of reveals the chicken and the egg problem of if you don't have a car, you can't get a job. And you know, if you don't have a job, you can't get a car. So it's great to hear people taking the first step. And then what about on the other side? So those are the things that people maybe are concerned about, but are barriers that are, as you said, hurdles that can be overcome. What are some of the things that are legitimate challenges with working with this set of um, workers that one might not re- realize from the, from the outside or maybe things that you didn't know going in? Yeah, the biggest one that we face is really cultural etiquette and even workplace etiquette. Mm-hmm. Just understanding there's certain norms that are expected in getting and keeping a job. And uh, most often, those things are not communicated. They're assumed. 
because mm-hmm. we're just used to, you know, someone, you know, coming and applying for a job and we kind of take for granted that they understand, you know, even simple things around, you know, what's the process of using the restroom, right? I mean, I remember one of our, we tell the story a lot because it's somewhat, you know, hilarious, but, but also, I mean, it was, it was one of our first uh, clients. And I remember um, one of our employees, his name was Muhammad. He was a, a, a refugee from Iraq. He had, had fought alongside uh, U.S. troops in Iraq and had um, provided translation for the U.S. troops. And so uh, he was resettled because as the troops pulled out, him and his family were targets for you know, terrorist groups because they felt like he may have some information or be loyal to the U.S. in some way. So that group of individuals are called SIVs, Special Immigrant Visas, and they are resettled in the U.S. because of their service. And in his case specifically, he was working in a manufacturing company and he was about four days in and he called us one morning and, and told us he was going to quit the job. And we're like, man, this is a perfect job for you. What's going on? Like, what did we miss in the process here that just isn't working out? And after, again, you know, it's kind of peeling back the layers of the onion. He just shared that he was embarrassed to, to kind of navigate some of the, you know, some of the process and like, what, you know, what are you talking about? And it came down to not knowing, when it was appropriate to use the bathroom or not. And I know that sounds like so bizarre, but he had such a high level of, of concern and wanting to you know, have kind of that honor and shame culture. He wanted to be honored in that community. And he felt like if he were to stop work and go use the bathroom, that, that would lead to his being mm-hmm. fired or lead to people you know, making fun of him or, or thinking less of him. And so he would rather quit than try to figure out what is the appropriate policy on going to the bathroom. So, I mean, there, there's some, some things that would just seem so intuitive to someone that grew up in America that you just have to really take time. And so a lot of times for companies, we'll say, hey, if your onboarding process is, is one week, then it might need to be two weeks. If it's one hour, mm-hmm. it might need to be two hours. Really take time, not necessarily talk slower, although that certainly helps, but it's really seeking that there's an understanding and um, that you're really covering all the bases, answering all the questions so that you build really strong trust. And it's, some, it's a place that someone feels safe and comfortable being a part of a team and being able to contribute. Are there other sort of cultural norms like th- that example that you can think of that have maybe come up more than once? Well, a, a big one is going to be anything around you know, religious activities. Um, mm. And so of course, with, you know, different cultures and different faith backgrounds that are, um, you know, converging in one office environment, there's going to be people that, you know, have different practices. And so just understanding those, being aware of them and being open to whatever you can do as the employer to support them is going to be really meaningful, right? So, you know, to think that everyone is going to celebrate Christmas and come to a Christmas party is, yeah, is maybe just a little ignorant, right? So thinking of different ways that we can all celebrate the things that are important to us at that season of the year. You know, some individuals don't want to take off for Christmas because it doesn't really mean anything to them, but they would love to have some days to take off during Ramadan, which is, you know, season of the year for those who practice Islam to, you know, essentially kind of fast during the day. They don't eat during the day. Um, They're eating before the sun comes up and when the sun goes down. And so even in that season of the year, we tell employers, for this, you know, usually it's a three to four week period. For this period of time, this is probably not the best time of the year to add certain responsibilities on you know, this department or to expect a higher level of output. You know, this is a season where they're going to absolutely hit the, the quotas and the requirements that are currently in place. 
but it may not be a time where you try to double production, right? So just mm-hmm. understanding the different religious practices is really important and allowing those employees to be able to you know, participate in, in their beliefs in their own way. I'm wondering if this has changed for you the amount of empathy you have for others or, or, you know, it sounds like you've got a pretty nuanced understanding of different kinds of cultures now. Has that affected you more outside of your work? It certainly has. I mean, there's really no way for it not to, right? I mean, it's part of the community we live in. But I think for anybody, it's one thing to kind of hear of an issue or to know about a, a circumstance or situation than it is to actually, you know, meet someone face to face and learn their story and hear about the nuances of the situation. It just, it just brings it to life. And so, so yeah, I mean, we're much more in tune to the challenges and complexity of us when it revolving, you know, immigration and, you know, the aspects of of refugee resettlement in the U S and, and, you know, the community that's here versus the community that still um, is in need of being resettling. What does that look like? And what are the challenges there? So we're much more um, immersed in that, but I think it gives us a, um, a glimpse at how anything that's happening in our country is being perceived from those that, um, that didn't grow up here and don't understand, you know, the depths of, racial tension in the U.S. Mm-hmm. and, you know, other factors that, you know, that we kind of, kind of just grew up in and, and just being grateful for the abundance that we have and the equality that we do have in the U.S. I know a lot of, a lot of attention is given to inequities um, when it comes to just various you know, resources that are available, you know, whether it be male, female or black, white, but reality is the inequities are much, much larger Uh, much, much more vast when you think of, you know, those individuals coming from the developing world into our setting. So uh, it just gives us more gratitude and more humility in the way that we perceive and and hopefully not jump jump to uh, conclusions and judgments as quick as we might used to. Have you ever been in a meeting where your team disagreed about the best course of action? Maybe you didn't know which message best resonates with your audience or exactly who your customers are, or maybe which features they want you to build. Customer research from an impartial third party can offer the clarity you need. That's why PhD Insights offers customer research delivered. Customer research delivered uses a five-step process to apply customer research to answer your pressing business problem. Within four weeks, they'll design, host, deploy, and analyze a quantitative study so you can make better decisions to keep your business growing. Learn more about customer research delivered by visiting phd-insights.com. That's phd-insights.com. So some of the kinds of roles that you've been talking about, you know, manufacturing, I typically think of them as sort of male stereotype jobs, whether or not that's accurate. But it made me start to wonder, are there particular challenges you have or special considerations for female refugees that you need to consider? Yeah, that's a really great question because early on, we were able to put males in roles pretty quickly. And we kept, we kept having women coming into the office and we kept saying, okay, we got to find an opportunity that is going to be the best fit for the women in our community. So one thing that's pretty interesting, if you think about it, is especially when you you think about the Middle Eastern culture, in some cases, you know, women are perceived as they're not the individuals that are expected to be the breadwinner. And uh, I'm trying to be, you know, careful in how I communicate that. But the idea is that if you really think about those who have, who are refugees who have resettled in the U.S., 
the individuals who are on the bottom of the barrel in terms of their opportunities are Muslim women who don't know English, who don't have a car, and they just don't have a lot of, of rights that they perceive in their favor. And so we really set out to find some companies that would be able to, to really fit that need. One of the companies that, that stepped in was a, um, it's a company called Gourmet. Um, they are a worldwide packager of food. So a little different than the company I mentioned earlier, but Gourmet, uh, specifically the department in the Atlanta area is a, is a department that packages cheese of different types. And so we started working specifically with the, this, the cheese department and um, we started placing women who, you know, they didn't have English, um, they didn't have transportation, but it just gave them so much dignity to have a place where they could go and in this case, speak their own language and just be able to kind of interact with each other and encourage each other, but have, you know, gainful employment that was paying a, a living wage. And so for a while there, I mean, any, there were women walking into our office saying, I want a job at the cheese company. And so it kind of built this reputation for being a safe place for them to, to uh, flourish. And so we see more and more companies like that. At this point, we have around 300 employees on payroll at the moment. And I would say we're about right around 50-50, probably closer to 60-40, 60% male, 40% female. But you know, positions that are entry-level roles from being like on an assembly line all the way up to being more like an administrator or secretary type position. There's lots of opportunities for women to, to engage and be able to provide many of them who are single moms now, um, you know, be able to provide for their family. That's great. Well, and I'd love to switch gears a little bit. Tell me about Amplio Ventures. This is a, a new sort of the next uh, pen in your cap. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, um, it's really been a progression more than anything else. And so, you know, what we've realized over the past five years with the staffing company is that job placement can work really well. It certainly works well in developed economies like the U.S., where, like we've been discussing, there are, there are job opportunities available. So in the market we're in, job placement can really thrive. But even after helping place 5,000 people into jobs you know, in 2018, that number was over 800 people just in 2018. And of course, our team works really hard. We have an incredibly gifted team from all over the world that do, I mean, on a daily basis, really care a lot about the communities they're in and do great work. And it's easy to pat ourselves on the back, but then we hear the reports of what's happening on a global scale for the refugee community. 70 million people who are displaced currently in the world, 800 doesn't really seem to even tip the scales. And so we're grateful for the lives changed and the stability and the impact it made for every single person. But we really started to ask the question, what can we do on a larger scale to move the needle for the global challenge that our world is facing with migration? And so we said, all right, job placement's not going to work in developing economies or frontier economies, um, but job creation certainly can. And that, that has to really be in place before job placement even makes sense. And so the progression from focusing on job placement in the U.S. to focusing on job creation more on a global perspective is what led us to launch a venture capital firm. That seems in some cases to be a pretty big leap, but in our world, it seemed to make a lot of sense. And so we brought in some, some partners who have you know, experience in impact investment and venture capital. And so we've, uh, over the past year, made, begin making investments and uh, releasing our first funds now. 
and just in the process of determining how we can invest in refugee entrepreneurs and companies who have placed a high priority of hiring refugees in their little corner of the world. And so it's been uh, an exciting pursuit at this point and uh, excited to see where things lead from here. Yeah. And can you just tell me a little bit more about where you are with that now? Like the funds already been raised or investments have been made or people have been applying or we're getting ready to do those things? Yeah. So over the past year, you know, the question we often got was really basically just prove that there is an opportunity here. The burden of proof was to say that there are refugee entrepreneurs out there who are doing some incredible things and are legitimately investable businesses. They're not just like a a donation kind of thing, or, you know, let me feel good about myself and I'll invest in this kind of business over here. But, but no, truly investable, legitimate opportunities. And we felt like we were seeing those. And as we connected to potential investors, they were interested in, you know, not just the idea of investing in refugees, but recognizing that there's legitimate opportunity to be had for returns here. When you start to look at the stats, um, you see that at a higher percentage refugees and immigrants are entrepreneurs and are successful in their business pursuits over uh, individuals who, who grew up in the U.S. And so that, that attitude and perspective, I think for a lot of refugee entrepreneurs, when we talk to them, they'll say, you know, I've, I've faced the most horrific things in my life, so I'm not really afraid of failure, you know, which is probably one of the things that keeps a lot of people from, from being an entrepreneur and starting a business. So we just see a lot of individuals either forced into it by just having to provide for family or just kind of have that DNA in their system to start something and innovate. And so we've seen, uh, yeah, we, we get to see a pretty strong deal flow of opportunities. And uh, being one of the first to, to kind of plant the flag in this whole movement of refugee investing, we're getting to see a lot of opportunities come our way. So, so now it's more finding investors who really care about this space. So at this point, we've, uh, we've invested in a couple of different companies. And we have a couple others in the pipeline that we're doing due diligence on. And then we've got the fund that we're really pushing into now. So I'd love to share a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess before we get to that, I'd love to ask if you could share a little bit about one of the companies you've already invested in. Yeah, yeah, I would love to. So this is probably a good story as it relates to the staffing side of the business as well. So I think that as we grow, a lot of our investments will be on on a global scale but early on, we just said, hey, the first few investments need to be U.S.-based investments. And let's you know, be very aware of the risk and, and just you know, kind of trying to uh, have a diverse portfolio from the start. And so um, we looked at one of the companies that we had already been serving on the staffing side. It's a, a laundry company uh, called Blusion. They are a wash, dry, and fold uh, laundromat. So their unique kind of competitive advantage in the marketplace is that they set up lockers at apartment complexes or uh, hospitals or corporate offices. An individual can place dirty laundry in a duffel bag, put it in a locker, and in 48 hours, uh, they'll go back to that same locker and uh, they'll have folded clean laundry in the bag. So we've been staffing for them for a while in the Atlanta market and they're growing across the country. And for their growth, they needed some capital. And uh, they just mentioned it to us, hey, is you know, do you know of... You know, potential investors that could be interested in what we're doing. And we said, as a matter of fact, you know, we do step into our office. <laughs> so that was the first investment we made. And uh, the investment really is to catalyze their growth across the US. So they want to be in about 20 markets. And if they, if they grow as expected, then they would be putting somewhere around 3,000 refugees into jobs. And the unique part about what they do is 
is they said, hey, we want to we want to put our facility where we're actually washing and folding the clothes in these refugee communities and be as close as possible to the individuals who are going to work for us to make it as easy as possible for them, especially for those who don't yet have transportation to come to work. And it's a good paying job. You know, there's very low English requirements. It's a very safe, comfortable environment to work in. So, so to think about a company like Blusion planting 20 facilities across the country in refugee areas and uh, you know, employing up to 3,000 people is something that we were excited about. But the, certainly the returns are there. The business model is strong. It's proven. They've got competitive advantage. They've got some market share. So it makes a lot of sense on the investment side as well. And so getting the experience of deploying capital and now watching that investment grow has been really exciting. And so that's kind of what led us to, to move towards the fund. Yeah, and I, I know I cut you off earlier. Um, I think you were going to talk about the platform. Yeah, so the, the, the fund that we're working on now is a remote refugee employment fund. And so what we've identified is that there are a lot of companies in the U.S., you know, tech companies that, that want to access a remote workforce. And, and the workforce they need are not individuals who've pursued years of training who you know can can code in their basement. Um, they're they're talking about individuals who have access to Wi-Fi, who you know have a device where they can can do basic functionalities when it comes to uh, sales research or lead generation or image tagging, or even just basic graphic design. You know, basic coding tasks that can be done from anywhere in the world. And even for those companies, where they're still in the same place of how do they find and, and engage those people especially to leverage the remote platform to decrease their cost and, and hopefully retain talent. And so as we connected with some of those companies, we recognize that there's a huge opportunity in uh, refugee camps and migrant camps across the world where individuals are essentially unable to do any income generating activities. Um, they are fed three meals a day, uh, in some cases, three meals a day, you know, they're living in a tent and the average stay for a refugee in a refugee camp at this point in 2019 is, is over 12 years. So these camps were meant to be very temporary, but we start, we're starting to see there are more and more permanent places for individuals. And so for, uh, for people who are in those environments, you know, they all had jobs before they had to, to flee and, and were displaced uh, into whatever uh, camp that they're in. And so, you know, why not give them the opportunity to, to step back into the workforce in some capacity um, and have that dignity of work and uh, be able to generate some income? And so migrant laws will not allow them to do any physical labor to earn income. But remote work actually, it circumvents that the law that's currently in place and, and allows them to, to have remote employment. So essentially, the idea of taking these high-yield tech companies in the U.S. and uh, connecting them with individuals who have high potential that has really just been untapped in refugee camps and migrant camps around the world. And so we're hoping that that kind of investment-led process will both improve infrastructure in some of these camps, as well as provide training opportunities for individuals who can, um, you know, improve their skills. And for many of them, it will allow them to step directly into a job and uh, allow them to begin to uh, you know, earn an income and, and provide for whatever needs they have. I'm excited to see how all these play out over the next few years. I mean, it's clear that you have a, a vision of, 
of the problem you're trying to solve broadly. And it's neat to see you implementing that in a couple different executions. I have just a couple of questions left before we turn to our Think a Little Different round. And we were talking offline before the interview began um, about the fact that you are a conservative living in the South. I, on the other hand, am a bleeding heart liberal living in Los Angeles. And I think for me, I don't get a lot of exposure to different kinds of viewpoints on the conservative side as much as I'd like to. You mentioned that over the last few years, the political opinions around refugees have really catalyzed, isn't the right word, they've kind of separated and become stronger, right? The left has a strong opinion about refugees. The right has a strong opinion about refugees. I'm wondering just from the work you do and where you are in the country, if there are assumptions you see both the left and right making around this group that you think might be wrong. Yeah, what a what an easy question to answer. Thank you. For <laughs> <laughs> no, but I but I mean I think what's really interesting to me from where I'm sitting is that it's clear you're you're helping this community, but you're doing it through a really different mechanism than somebody on the left might, right? You're doing it through sort of the power of work, sort of the power of free market. So that's something that someone with your background might have pursued that someone with my background might have not. And that's why one of the big goals of the show is this idea of diversity of opinions, that if we have different kinds of backgrounds and different kinds of interests, we solve problems in different ways and that can be really, really valuable. So I'm just curious if there are things you see on either the left or the right that you'd like to maybe see change or you see assumptions that people are making that you wish you could correct them on or... Yeah, I really do appreciate the question. and. I'm happy to dive into it. I don't think that, you know, I, I am certainly not someone that, that can speak for an entire conservative population. Obviously, that's, we have to be so careful about, you know, taking one person's viewpoint as representative of everyone's, right? So I'll, I'll, I'll provide the caveat before I share any of my thoughts that, hey, I'm just one person. And I think we're all, we all want what's best for, for our nation. We want what's best for, you know, individuals you have certain challenges facing them to, to thriving in their own way. So I think we can all agree on those things. And then obviously there's much more to agree on than, than we differ on. So I'll start there. And so here's what I see on both sides, because often the work that we're, we're, we're doing allows us to speak very freely to, to both sides of the aisle, so to speak. I think from the conservative perspective, there's a knee jerk reaction. When you talk about immigration, we talk about, uh, you know, refugees, to not fully understand all of the complexities and to easily kind of uh, to put it in a nice box and to be not necessarily to be to ignore it or not to be concerned with it, but to place a higher priority on other things. Right. So typically at this day and age, we hear the conversation around safety and that safety trumps, you know, obviously no pun intended here. Safety trumps the need to provide opportunities for individuals who are experiencing trauma in other countries who are trying to, to get to the U.S. And so, of course, I understand that and, and certainly believe that we need to have you know, great policies in place to, and certainly need to improve policies around immigration. But I would, I would urge the right to really take a good look at the, the complexities and to really look at the, the stats and really understand the issue. So we talk about how it's easy to perceive refugees and even the immigrant community as a terrorist threat or some sort of, of safety threat. And if we put them in that box only, then what will end up happening is we want to keep close tabs on them. We want to keep them at arm's length and watch them very closely. And if we're not careful, that just turns into some sort of, you know, kind of communist uh, sort of puppetry 
that no one really wants, right? I mean, that's going to cost more. It's going to cause more challenges and problems. And what we see is if we treat people like that, they potentially could end up engaging in that type of activity, right? So if we have individuals who are resettling in the U.S. legally, but they get here and they face a lot of tension and a lot of suspicion about who they are and the clothes they wear and how they speak, we're then kind of shunning them in a way in which they're going to now be open to, you know, why am I here? And obviously we know that, you know, terrorist groups are incredibly active on social media trying to recruit people. They would love to recruit people who are already in the U.S., right? And so Mm -hmm. they would love to radicalize individuals who have been disenfranchised with what they expected the U.S. to be and what they expected to be a, a welcoming environment for them to to be able to establish themselves and get a job and go to school and, and pay taxes and be a part of the American dream, just like all the immigrants before us in America have had the opportunity to do. So we've got to be very careful with that approach. And then on the opposite side, I think there's often this perspective uh, from liberals to say, these individuals have been through so much. We just need to provide and meet their needs and that they really are a charity case. And let's just in some sense, just provide handouts to them. In a sense, let's set up an environment for them that is very socialist in nature, that is going to allow them to not have to face any more challenges and kind of live out their days in in some form of kind of monotony. Well, the individuals that I interact with that are refugees in this country, they can't imagine that kind of mentality. They don't represent any people who want to be seen as charity. They want to be able to contribute. They want to be a part of the workforce. Uh, they want to be able to pay taxes and add value to their local community. And so they don't want to be seen as a charity case either. And I think that seems to be the tendency uh, from the left is to really have that, that bleeding heart in a way that it, it keeps you from seeing the opportunity and maybe the, the capitalistic uh, opportunity at play to allow people to contribute in their own way and have dignity in the things that they bring to the table and all of their cultural differences and religious beliefs that come with it. And, uh, and so we talk a lot about not a charity case, not a terrorist threat, but a workforce, a group mm-hmm. of contributors that want to add value. Uh, we have a book coming out in the fall. And so, you know, you can, you can access the book on our website now, refugeeworkforce.com. And it's all about that economic impact the refugees have here in the U.S. And we'll put that link in show notes as well. It's refugeeworkforce.com. Well, I, and I really appreciate you sharing that perspective. And I know that you're in a unique situation working with this population, sort of when you're working with them and where you're working with them. And with that, I would love to turn to our Think a Little Different rounds, our final round of questions. And you can answer these um, either as your professional self or your personal self, either is fine. What's something you've changed your mind about in the last few years? You know, specifically continuing this whole conversation around how we perceive immigrants and refugees. I'm certainly at, at a different place than I was five years ago when we started this. And I think on a daily basis, as I'm reading the news and engaging with uh, various perspectives on the work that pertains to this space, it's shaping daily who I am and my beliefs. And I think in some ways that's, a, that's not a very insightful statement, but I think in other ways, I hope that we all have permission to adjust our views and to change our perspectives and to be open-minded about all the different factors because it's so dynamic. I mean, on a daily basis, it's changing. 
And uh, I think it's easy for us to kind of get stuck in like, this is the only way I can see the world. And this is how people, that's my identity. And so what would people think of me if I were to shift that or if I believe differently on this one issue and it doesn't necessarily align with the overall party? And so I, I guess I just stand as one person that says, hey, I'm, you know, this time next year, I might have a completely different belief system or, or way to engage uh, this topic. And that's okay. I mean, I think we all need the permission to, to do that. Well, you, you had mentioned in there that this affects you sort of in a day-to-day way. Do you have any odd or unusual habits that maybe embody your particular worldview? <laughs> this is somewhat odd, but also more, just more uh, current um, in our family. And it's just something that's kind of come out over the last few weeks. So, you know, at our office at lunchtime, all the productivity uh, plummets and we all, I think we actually even lock the door now and we just sit, sit around the table and eat lunch together for a few minutes. And it's usually this diverse, different types of food. And the language is usually in politically correct. And there's just, just people being themselves and engaging. And so one of the things that just, this happened a couple of weeks ago was, you know, some, it was like a cracker or a chip or something that fell on the floor. And, uh, one of our team members, uh, Zena, who is a refugee from the Middle East, uh, she picked it up and kissed it, touched both of her eyelids and then ate it. And we we're like, wait, what was that that you just did? Is this like a, ri-? I mean, <laughs> there's things like on a daily basis that come out like that about, you know, rituals and, and just ways of, of engaging with culture. And so we started doing that in our home. So my son's five years old, you know, crumbs are just a part of life and it's constantly at the table. Can I eat that? It fell on the floor. And, and so he started doing this now where he kisses it, touches both eyelids and eats it. And I don't know what that whole thing's about, but there's uh, different traditions and different cultures of how you honor the food that has fallen on the floor and what you do with it. So, um, so that's a pretty odd uh, uh, recurring habit in our family right now. I love that. Is there a common practice that you think will change in the next decade? Wow, such a good question. So in our perspective of the whole kind of staffing world and just employment in the U.S., one of the trends that we are intrigued by is what seem to be companies moving towards shorter, tighter shifts. And so that could be, most often we think about in terms of hospitality, that you know, restaurants really need to staff up between, you know, 11 and one o'clock every day for lunch or, you know, five to eight for the dinner rush. But we're starting to see that across industries where individuals are maybe only working four and six hour shifts. And those individuals then probably have two or three jobs. And so they might drive for Uber and they might have what essentially is a part-time job, you know, in manufacturing. And then they might also work at a desk at a hotel And so it just seems like there may be a growing trend there towards shorter and tighter shifts. And then companies will have to adjust if they do go in that direction. How are benefits then engaged? Um, You know, how do you build culture around people who may not be at work as long, but it allows the company to be more profitable? So it's something to keep an eye on. Do you even ask for the audience? I think the biggest ask is really to, uh, to get to know individuals who are immigrants and refugees in your community, don't assume that you understand uh, where they're coming from and get their beliefs and opinions. And then I think overall, a lot of things we've talked about, we go into much more depth in in the book, Refugee Workforce. And so we'd love for people to, to buy the book and engage with it, give it to others that you think you would love to have an open mind on this whole issue, especially how we re- approach it from an economic perspective. And where can people find you online if they want to learn more? 
yeah, I'm on uh, all the socials at Chris Chancy. And, uh, and then our, as our company, it's Amplio underscore recruit in Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and then AmplioRecruiting.com and RefugeeWorkforce.com. Chris Chancy, thank you so much. I really appreciate you being here. Thank you for allowing me to, to be involved in the conversation. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If so, I invite you to subscribe to Innovation for All on iTunes or your favorite podcasting platform. Thank you to our producer, Nia Taylor, our audio engineer, Dave Visaya, and Glorianne O'Kay, who compiles our show notes. You can view show notes from this and every episode at innovationforallcast.com.